The first black MVP in the American League was a former Negro Leaguer and a catcher. It is over the screen in the lower deck a home run. Elston Howard with a two-run pinch homer into the right field lower seats. But today, the black catcher has all but disappeared from professional baseball. You know, I was always, you know, pretty much the best catcher around. And people were still trying to move me out from that position, uh, which I never really understood. We'll ask why and take a look at the greatest catchers in the history of black baseball and talk to potentially the next man on that list. The position is known as the tools of ignorance, when in actuality, it takes a lot of not only guts and guile, but intellect to play the catching position in baseball. And thus came this stigma as it relates to the Negro Leagues that the black athlete wasn't smart enough to play catcher. The last great black catcher in the major leagues, the two that come to mind, Russell Martin, who is actually Canadian and black, and of course, Charles Johnson, who was really the last great black catcher. I was a catcher my entire life. I started catching when I was eight. Um, there, I played other positions, but my heart always brought me back to catching. And, uh, you know, for me to, to instill these young kids that you can catch, you can be a leader, you can be the guy on the field that's going to really run the game. And uh, me and Lenny Webster and me and Lenny played in Baltimore together. And if I, if I had to think about it, I don't know when there probably was a, a tandem of African-American catchers in the big leagues. So when I talk about a guy like Frank Duncan, the great Frank Duncan, who not only would play catcher predominantly for the great Kansas City Monarchs, and he was one of the top backstops in black baseball during his era and was masterful, as they would say, of handling pop flies. But look at the Hall of Fame litany of great pitchers that Frank Duncan caught. Satchel Paige, Bullet Rogan, Jose Mendez, hopefully future Hall of Famers in Chet Brewer and John Donaldson. They all had something in common. They had the great Frank Duncan catching them. And he masterfully handled that litany of great monarch pitchers uh, with great skill. And, and I can tell you, catching Satchel, while it was easy to catch Satchel, calling Satchel might have been a whole nother story because I'm not sure Satchel was going to take too much advice from anyone. So I don't know how hard Frank Darkin had to work to catch Satchel, but he put in all the necessary time and effort with all the other guys. He even once caught Dizzy Dean in an exhibition game against the Monarchs when Dean basically pulled him out of a pool room so that he could catch the game for him. He was hard-nosed. He was smart. He understood the nuances of the position. And he was just, again, one of the great catchers of the Negro Leagues. And of course, when we talk about great catching in the Negro Leagues, you know we would be remiss 
if we did not mention the name Joshua Gibson. Former Negro Leagues pitcher Walter McCoy. When Josh comes up there, he said, don't try to get cute with him because you don't know nothing about him. <laughs> he says, this is a big ballpark, which it was, the biggest ballpark I've ever seen. What we do with Josh, he said, we don't worry much about trying to strike him out and all that stuff. We try to contain him. Just keep the ball in the park. That's your first order of business. So he said, you try to make him hit the ball straight away. And I was thinking, no, that's fine, but I'm pitching. And, and, and if he hits straight away, he don't have to hit a line drive or hit the ball deep to the outfield. Suppose he was on the ground to come through here where I am. That don't sound too good. I was thinking about myself, I'm going to throw the ball. He can get anywhere he wants to, but he ain't going to hit it through here. <laughs> Josh Gibson, arguably the greatest combination of power and average this sport has ever seen, sometimes doesn't get his due for just how great a catcher he really was. The great Walter Johnson, who saw Gibson catch, says that he was worth $200,000 to any major league team at that time, that he threw so easily and had such a great arm that any club would benefit from having a young Josh Gibson. And so Gibson was not a good catcher, but a great catcher. And so when we start to talk about catchers who combine power, and average, along with great defensive prowess. Well, that list is pretty doggone short. And in my opinion, at the top of that list would be Josh Gibson. He had all the tools you needed. Former Negro Leagues pitcher, Wilmer Harris. Josh was a man that he actually didn't get out. He got to suffer. Roy Partler was my friend. He could really pitch. And they were playing Homestead Grays in Washington. And Josh came to the bat, and he had him over three he had. They had played together, you know, on Homestead Grays. And he told him, Roy, you, you're going out of here today. <laughs> and, and, and Roy was real, one of those people that were real evil, you know. He, uh, he got two strikes and threw him a fastball or a curveball or something. And he hit it up on the right field screen. He missed from going over the right field screen by about that much. And it looked just like a left-hand hitter had hit it. And Josh was right-handed. And he ran around the second base and started laughing at him. <laughs> he said, well, you got you to get somebody else out because I'm going to score. And that's the way he did. And they scored a run they won. But Josh was just phenomenal. Former Negro Leagues catcher and three-time National League MVP, Roy Campanella, with journalist Stephen Banker. Well, I can recall one game uh, we were playing against the home state Grays in Welsh, West Virginia. Now, uh, this goes back to about 1941, and Josh Gibson was the catcher for the Homestead Grays. And uh, I know uh, Baltimore had one of its top pitchers pitching that day, Andrew Porter. And I was catching, and the first three times up, Josh Gibson hit three home runs. So, And it looked like the first one just did go over the fence. The next one went a little further, and the next one went a little further. So uh, I told, I went out and told our pitcher, undoubtedly, uh, we're not pitching this guy right today. I said, well, look, uh, we don't have to get the manager in on it, but let's just pitch him bad, 
and see if he'll swing in one of those innings. So we wind up walking him. But this guy, and the last home run he hit, pretty near went over the top of the mountain. Not over the fence, but over the top of the mountain. And, and I remind people, if you want an indication of who Josh Gibson looked like physically, just imagine Bo Jackson as a catcher, and you've got Josh Gibson. Six foot, six foot one, weighed about 220, 225, completely ripped, trademark rolled up left sleeve, showing off those guns, great eyes, hit for power, hit for average, but again, wasn't a good catcher, a great catcher. Rifle arm, he's throwing guys out from the crouch. Back in that era, my dear friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, would say that he had complete control of his pitching staff. So he called a great game, was a great running catcher. So he was going to steal you 20 to 25 bases or more to go with that big bat of his. And folks, as I oftentimes say, when I say big bat, I mean big bat. 40 ounce, 41 inches. And and so he was so dominant as a catcher, and he was such a physical specimen back there. And again, when you combine both offense and defense, there's no one that compares to Josh Gibson. In my opinion, this has been the greatest home run hitter ever. And I played against Aaron. I never played against Babe Ruth, but I played against Ted Williams. I played against Joe DiMaggio. I played against Stan Musial, Mickey Mantle, oh, Mays. But I've never seen a man to hit home runs as graceful and with the easy swing as Josh Gibson. What about a guy named Earl Taborn? Earl Mickey Taborn. Earl would ultimately leave the Negro Leagues to go down to Mexico and would eventually call Mexico home, met a senorita, had a beautiful daughter. As a matter of fact, one of the most proud pieces that we display at the museum is a beautiful glass mosaic that was created by Earl Taborn's daughter, Rosemary Taborn. And it hangs proudly inside the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, where her father was a dynamic receiver. And you would hear stories of how he would actually beat the runner to first base as he's backing up first base on a ball hit to the infield, the catching position, as you know, would back up first base. And Earl Taborn would oftentimes beat the runner to first base. And and the fans are in the stands that double over in laughter. But again, a rifle arm understood his pitching staff, so he called a great game as well. And then we talk about guys like Louis Santop, Big Bertha. And again, if your nickname is Big Bertha, name for the German artillery weapon, you can pretty much surmise that you got a pretty doggone good arm. And Louis Santop had a great arm. He could stand at home plate and throw the ball over the center field fence. He would put on a dazzling exhibition, particularly when they competed against white all-star teams or these exhibition games against white teams where Big Bertha would stay in his crouch behind home plate and throw one peg after another to every base for 15 minutes straight 
and the fans are absolutely enthralled and delighting at this show that he would put on. Amazing talent. And as far as he could throw the ball, he could hit the ball even farther. Swung a big bat, 42-ounce bat, great power in that dead ball era. And Louis Santop, of course, is rightfully enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. We remember and reflect on the careers of Elston Howard, who was a star here for the great Kansas City Monarchs. But Ellie actually played outfield when he was here with the Monarchs. And of course, would later be converted to a catcher where he toiled for so many years behind the great Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra is your catcher. You're likely not going to get to the major leagues anytime too soon. And unfortunately for Ellie, he spent quite a bit of time in the Yankees minor league system before he finally got that opportunity to come up and really became the heart and soul of those Yankee teams. The first black MVP in the American League was Elston Howard. That 1963 MVP award truly was the pinnacle of a long, incredible journey for Elston Howard. Long before putting on the Yankee pinstripes, he was a 19-year-old making just $500 a month playing for Buck O'Neill and the Kansas City Monarchs, where he would room with a teenaged Ernie Banks and learn the ropes of his future position under Monarchs catcher Earl Taborn. In 1950, three years after Jackie Robinson broke the major league color barrier, the Yankees purchased the contract of Elston Howard along with teammate Frank Barnes for a reported $25,000. But like so many great ball players of the era, his career was put on hold for two years due to a greater duty. He was drafted into the U.S. Army and sent overseas. Upon return, life moved quickly. Howard moved to catcher. He led the International League in triples in 1954 and won league MVP. And in 1955, Elston Howard received the call to the big leagues to become the first black player in Yankees history. 12 All-Star Games, six World Series championships, two gold gloves, and a 1963 AL MVP award. Elston Howard's number 32 is now retired by the Yankees, and his career is immortalized in the Yankees Monument Park. And so Elston Howard would also kind of carry on that legacy of the great black catchers, who many of them never got the opportunity. And then you recall the likes of the great Larry Iron Man Brown, one of the greatest arms in black baseball history. He was also a tremendous showman, and he played to the crowd, but a great signal caller. And what you'll find with catchers like Frank Duncan, who would later become a manager, Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe, who would become a manager, Larry Brown, too, would become a manager. You know, so that whole connection between catching and the managerial role, you can understand that it was also very pertinent in the Negro Leagues as these individuals would become leaders of men in fulfilling that role as managers in our sport. Well, Larry Brown, Iron Man Brown, once threw out Ty Cobb five consecutive times. 
Cobb was determined he's going to steal on Brown, and Brown was gunning him down each and every time to the point that Ty Cobb allegedly wanted to have Larry Brown pass himself off as being Cuban. Larry Brown was a very light-skinned brother, and so he could have likely passed for being white Cuban. And Cobb believed that if he was willing to do this, they could bring him to the major leagues. Well, Larry Brown, very proud man, wanted nothing to do with the indignities of trying to pass himself off as being from another ethnicity. And he refused that opportunity. And so he was another one of those great backstops. And we talked about Raleigh Biz Mackey. Raleigh Biz Mackey, I think you can make the case, the greatest defensive catcher this sport has ever seen. And I honestly believe that if the great Roy Campanella, who was a three-time MVP with the Brooklyn Dodgers, if he was alive today, he'd tell you that Raleigh Biz Mackey was the greatest defensive catcher this sport has ever seen. Biz Mackey, of course, would take a young Roy Campanella under his wings. Roy Campanella comes to the Negro Leagues when he was 15 years old as a member of the Baltimore Elite Giants. Now, of course, it's spelled elite, but it is pronounced elite. And you make those Negro Leaguers mad if you call them the Elite Giants. They were the Elite Giants. And Campy comes in as a 15-year-old catcher. Now, again, he wasn't your normal 15-year-old. Roy Campanella was a man-child. Former Negro Leagues catcher Stanley Glenn on a young Roy Campanella. Well, when I first saw him in Baltimore, he was the first-string catcher. Pooch was strong, didn't like the ball low and away from him, so he got a bat 38 inches long so that he could stay there and think he could still reach that ball on the outside corner. Roy had all the tools to be a fine catcher, and he was a fine catcher, and a fine throwing arm. And even though he was a catcher, he wasn't slow. Most catchers were slow. Not Roy. Former Negro Leagues infielder Gordon Hopkins, courtesy of the University of Baltimore. Money Downs played with a catcher named Biz Mackey. Now, Biz Mackey was the uh, catcher with the the Baltimore Elites for a while, and he showed Campanella. A snap through. Now, that, did you ever see Campanella catch? Never saw Campanella catch. But Campanella had a snap throw that he could sit on his haunches and, and pick the guy off, like on first base, and he just one of them snap throws. And, and of course, the list goes on and on and on. The many great black catchers who were part of Negro League's lore. And it just makes you wonder what would have happened had the doors opened sooner. How many would have gotten an opportunity? I recall Buck O'Neill talking about a player that he went to go scout at Southern University, a guy named Roy McGriff. Roy McGriff was an outstanding catcher at Southern University. And that's actually who Buck and other scouts were coming to see. But when Buck gets to Southern University, he sees another guy that he absolutely falls in love with, and he actually turned his sights away from McGriff and set them on a kid by the name of Lou Brock. And of course, Buck O'Neill 
would win that deal and ultimately signed Lou Brock to the Chicago Cubs. And of course, Buck, as he would always tell you, was one of the last to sign off on that ill-fated trade that sent Lou Brock to the St. Louis Cardinals for a hurt arm pitcher by the name of the late Ernie Brolio. But Buck actually was there to scout this catcher by the name of Roy McGriff. The name is just as familiar as you think it is. Roy McGriff's son is Terry McGriff, who caught parts of six years in the big leagues. Terry McGriff's cousin is Fred McGriff, who hit 493 home runs across 19 seasons. And Fred McGriff's first cousin? Well, that comes full circle. It's Charles Johnson, the last African-American catcher to play in a Major League All-Star game. And that was 20 years ago, in 2001. As we continue to look at the legacy of the Negro Leagues, and we continue to try and break down some of those myths and misnomers as it relates to those great stars of the Negro Leagues, it's important to understand that the catching position was significant, that these athletes were not only physically dominant, but they were very much intellectual. They understood the game, called a great game, was in control of their pitching staffs, and could flat out play the position. And so we tip our cap to those who played that position known as the tools of ignorance. And we look at them with great admiration, knowing just how intellectual they really were, and that they set a legacy of greatness behind the plate. So then, what happened since Elston Howard, since Roy Campanella, since John Roseboro and Earl Batty, or even since Charles Johnson? Why has the black catcher disappeared from baseball over the last 20 years? For that, we dig deeper than the majors and go back to historically black Southern University to ask head baseball coach Chris Crenshaw. Role models. Today's kid doesn't have a, a black catcher to, to look at on TV, really. Not to get off track, but speed is another reason. I mean, today's kid, they putting a faster kid in the outfield or a shortstop. They're not sticking him behind the plate. Then I would say the brain game. Basically, uh, an example that I came up with was like the quarterback. African-Americans weren't getting a chance to play quarterback until, what, the last 20, 30 years? Before then... Play wide receiver, tight end, running back. Catcher's gear. It probably costs $300, $400 now. That's low end. Yes. Catcher's gear. Uh, that's not even including the mitt. That's just the gear you're putting on. It's eye-opening, Coach, for a lot of our visitors when they come here to tour the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And when I'm down in the exhibition and I'm telling stories about Josh Gibson, because lost in Josh Gibson's prolific bat, you know, we're talking about one of the greatest bats ever. You know, right. not just power, but Gibson was a great hitter who had power. But people forget that Josh could steal you 20, 25 bases a season, if not more. He was a tremendous athlete that was playing the catcher's position in the Negro Leagues. Most of those catchers in the Negro Leagues were great athletes. But see, I think what you're talking about is a dynamic that when you have your own league, you don't have to pigeonhole anyone. 
Right. You know, you can put that great athlete behind the plate because but out in front of him is a whole bunch of other great athletes. Exactly. And, and so you don't have to pigeonhole that particular player. So the athleticism of those catchers was tremendous in the Negro Leagues. They had all the tools. They certainly were intellectual enough because even in this program, we relate to the fact that many of those catchers in the Negro Leagues would also become managers later on as well. Great Frank Duncan, who, I mean, had a tremendous arm. And, and, and to show you how smart Frank Duncan was, Frank Duncan would marry Julia Lee, the legendary jazz artist, who was absolutely beautiful. So he was pretty smart. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good conversation, at least. <laughs> I don't think it's enough emphasis put on the catcher's position. Uh, I know growing up for me, I was a left-handed catcher till I was about 10 or 11. <laughs> That's because I was the only one that could throw it to second. And then I was a pitcher. Uh, but, I mean, I for me, I wish my son would play catcher, but I doubt he will. He liked to play the outfield. Well, it's the glamour position, you know. It, you know, it, it is something about running them down out there, and yeah, you don't you know, get that whole yards, you don't get bruises on you. Uh, that's <laughs> another reason why we shy away from playing catcher. But I mean, I played with three guys that I could think of off the top of my hand that were athletic enough to play every position, but they played catcher. One of them is Amir Anderson. He's a one of the top engineers in the state of Louisiana. So. The brain game. There you go. Smart guy. <laughs> he won like four or five championships in college. Then I played with Michael Thomas. I think he was drafted by Boston. And then in high school, I played with a kid named Julian Henson. That's three black catchers that I played with growing up. They're out there. They just got to get the opportunity. You know, one of the catchers that we didn't talk extensively about is a guy named Quincy Troop, who did get called up to the majors but he was so old and he never got a fair chance. He, he was absolutely too old at that time. Quincy Troop had been a boxer at one point in time. So he was as tough as they came, but he was also smart enough to get out of the boxing game and get back to catch it because, you know, getting in the ring with Joe Lewis and all these guys, that might not have been the smartest thing to take on. So Quincy put down the gloves and put the catcher's gear back on and focus on catching and he was a great catcher in the Negro Leagues who ultimately did make it up to the major leagues, but only got a cup of coffee in the major leagues because, again, you know, he was too old by the time he got there. And that's why I still marvel at Roy Campanella. Campy had already been catching professionally for almost 10 years by the time Brooklyn signs him. That's a lot of wear and tear on the body. And, and yet still he becomes a three-time most valuable player. And, and again, he... Obviously, he's one of the greatest catchers this sport has ever seen. And if you ran through a list of great catchers from the Negro Leagues, I'm not sure Campy is in the top five, which tells you, and that's not a slight against Campy, it just tells you how talented that position was in the Negro League. That's crazy. And so, Somebody that statue to not even be in the top five. Yeah, I, I think you can make a great case for several other guys who were better catchers than Roy Campanella. And, and Campy is certainly one of the greatest catchers in Major League Baseball history, uh, which I think is pretty special, which is why we're so excited to talk about this particular topic 
uh, for Black Diamonds, searching for the why and what happened to the Black catcher. But there is hope on the way and a new generation of Black athletes ready to make their mark behind the dish. Coming up next on Black Diamonds, Bob sits down with an 18-year-old All-American catcher who's a 2021 Texas Rangers draftee. He was also a pioneer in Black history education at his Iowa high school and is a young man who's unafraid to use his voice to fight for social change. Ian Mahler. Every game? From the first pitch to the last out of the World Series. What about my hometown announcers? They're on the SiriusXM app. They built it knowing you would come. Ray, there's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long. Is this heaven? No, Ray. It's MLB Network Radio, Channel 89. This summer, experience Negro Leagues 101, a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC and follow Bob at NLBMPrez. Well, I'm thrilled to welcome Ian Mahler to Black Diamond. Ian was the 103rd overall pick in the 2021 MLB draft. He's now part of the Texas Rangers organization, and he's from Dubuque, Iowa. Ian, welcome to Black Diamond. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Simon. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you because... Not only were you drafted into Major League Baseball, but you were drafted as a catcher. Mm-hmm. So take me back. When did you become interested in that position? Yeah, um, I mean, it really started when I was young. I about I was six. Um, I mean, my dad uh, was a catcher, and um, he was a catcher growing up. And he kind of got me into it, and he kind of explained to me at a young age that um, you know, there's not a lot of, you know, great, you know, actual catchers in the, you know, the MLB. And um, he told me that he thought that catching would be the best way for me to make it to the major leagues. And, uh, I mean, I kind of just stuck with it. And uh, as it got more difficult throughout the years, I saw less and less people, you know, sticking at that catch position. And um, I just stayed with it. And, you know, I'm here now. So As you're developing your skills, as a catcher, and you're playing the position more and more. And again, as a kid, you're right in the middle of the action when you play in that catching position. And I, and I would imagine that that's exciting as well. But typically, as you start to grow into the sport and you're athletic, they kind of move you out of that position. So what has allowed you to stay there and play that, and play that position? Yeah, uh, I definitely had that a lot growing up, almost too much. You know, I was always, you know, pretty much the best catcher around. And people were still trying to move me out from that position, um, which I never really understood. But um, some people tried to explain it to me, and um, I wasn't really going for it. But um, like I said, I just had to be exceptional at it. And I had to show people that I can actually catch. Um, not just an athletic guy back there um, doing what I do. You know, I'm exceptional at it. And uh 
I mean, I work really hard at it. And um, I mean, I even talked to a lot of kids now who are shortstops and things like that. And they said, you know, when they're 11 and 12, they change positions. You know, they're better at catcher just because, you know, people told them to move the shortstop or center field, um, especially from the breakthrough series. Um, a lot of black athletic kids. And they just said that, you know, coach wanted to move positions, even though they were great catchers. And so, I mean, that's what they did. So I feel like a lot of the, People who had potential like the catcher position, who were athletic, you know, they got moved out of there when they were really young kids. So, I mean, I just always, I mean, I love catching and I was always the best at it. So, I mean, I never really had an excuse to move up out of there. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're, you're growing up in, in Iowa, Dubuque, Iowa. Uh, not a whole lot of black folks in Dubuque. Nah. And so playing baseball, I'm going to just take a guess that you were probably one of few black players on your team. And so how were you accepted by your white teammates as a black kid growing up in an area that did not have a large population of black folks? Yeah. I mean, I was really the only black kid in like the leagues I was playing at all, you know what I'm saying? And um, for the kids, it was never really a problem just because um, I was usually the best out there. Um, I know there used to be a lot of talk amongst, you know, parents and, um, things like that. Uh, I'm not going to get into all that, but I know there's a lot of times my parents had to you know, defend me when I was younger, you know, just defend themselves as parents just because, you know, black kids out there playing baseball and he's a catcher and he's the best player on the field. Um, so within the actual, you know, teammates growing up, I mean, I never really had any issues, but it was more with, you know, the outside chatter with the parents and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, I, I find it really interesting because when we start to examine the catching position in the Negro Leagues, as I mentioned, there were so many legendary catchers. One of the first names, and I think one of the most colorful characters of all time, was a legendary catcher by the name of Ted Double Duty Ratcliffe. <laughs> and and Ian, he earned his nickname Double Duty when the great sports writer Damon Runyon saw Duty in a doubleheader playing at Yankee Stadium. They're playing the New York Black Yankees. Duty's playing for the Pittsburgh Crawfords. And uh, Runyon sees Double Duty catch a Satchel Page shutout. Satchel shut out the Black Yankees three to nothing gave up two hits in that game. And then Duty took off the catcher's gear and took the mound and threw a shutout. He beat the Black Yankees five to nothing and gave up four hits. And, and Duty, who, as I mentioned, was one of the most colorful characters in, I think, in sports history, but he was known to have inscribed across his chest protector, thou shalt not steal. <laughs> what do you think when you hear about a guy like Ted double duty Radcliffe yeah I mean I love guys like that um, I, I mean I think that's what makes the game fun and you know, I think you know part of the that's kind of substance is missing in today's game I mean I just wish I was back there to you know to watch it see stuff like that because I mean that's what makes the game exciting it's, it's so much fun to think about what it was like for those guys playing back in that era, they had a good time. You know, mm -hmm. this was rough and tumble life in the Negro Leagues, but they had a great time. And when you've got guys like Duty on your team, number one, they never stop talking. 
Dude, wherever duty is right now, and he died in 2005 at age 103, you can rest assured that double duty is talking right now. I'm not completely quiet. Um, you know, if I see a bad swing or pitcher make a nice pitch, I might say something to the batter. And um, I know he's going to try extra hard, you know, to, you know, to do, do more than what he's capable of. So, I mean, I, I, I ain't like, you know, double duty, but you know, <laughs> I, I, ain't, I ain't completely, completely quiet back there. I got to know him before he passed away. And we talk about, you know, that, that, that position that effectively was known as the tools of ignorance. And, and I saw duty's hands. You know, because when you're catching guys like Satchel Paige and some of these other guys who threw exceptionally hard with the equipment that they had, and in his fingers were literally mangled. I mean, they would turn in so many different directions from having had broken fingers throughout the course of time and through all those years of catching, and he was involved in the game for well over three decades. So, I mean, he caught for a long, long time. And as you know, that sport, it beats your body up. And, and so when you think about the physical toll, you know, how do you wrap your arms around the physical aspect of the tool, of the trade, I should say, that you've chosen to pursue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely for the week. Uh, even out here, I'm out here in Arizona, um, right now, and I'm catching six, seven bullpens a day. I mean, missing out on a lot of hitting time, things like that, just to catch. And um, yeah, it's definitely not for the week. Um, I think it's the most demanding position, definitely on the field, in my opinion. And um, I mean, you got a lot of things going on when you catch. You got to deal with the physical. You got to deal with uh, the mental, just as big as the physical. Um, you got to take control. Um, you gonna? I mean, I've never really caught a game where I'm completely fresh. You know, what I'm saying something's always bruised or something's hurting or something like that. And um, that's what we just got to push through it. And um, yeah, it's definitely not, definitely not for the week at all, man. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough. It's really tough. Talk to me a little bit about your family. I know your family has been so instrumental and, you know, that your great grandfather, you know, had a little bit of a stint in the Negro leagues as well. And so is in the bloodline. So talk a little bit about what, they have meant in your progression in our sport? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, my father, he's the only coach I've really ever had in my life. He's been my my trainer, um, all that. So I mean, I've really just been hearing his voice, you know, my whole 18 years. So he's really taught me everything. And um, I, mean, I never really had a, um, my grandfather had died before um, I was able, I was born, but, um, you know, he's like said a lot of knowledge on my father. My father um, said, said that knowledge on me. And um, I remember when I was younger, you know, we used to watch a lot of uh, Negro League highlights. And um, there's a, a film on Josh Gibson and Satchel Page, like a little matchup they had. I remember they had it on a little DVD that we used to watch. Um, and just like really when I got out of that and what he tried to teach me was just the pure, you know, joy, you know, that they were having. And um, the way they played, they played hard. You know, they had fun. They goofed around. Uh, but they played hard. Um, guys were going first to home on balls to left field, like all that. You know, he just wanted me to kind of bring that, you know, into the game. And, you know, I think that's the reason why I play hard right now, um, why I kind of have a chip on my shoulder and things like that. And, um, yeah, I mean, they, I mean, he's taught me everything. And, um, I mean, the way that they play, that's kind of the way that he wanted me to play. 
And, you know, like I said, he's been my trainer my whole life. So really just been his voice and um, his knowledge that he got passed through generations, you know, all that got passed on me. So, I mean, I, I'm grateful that, you know, he had experiences that were passed down. And I, I was able to learn too as well. Yeah. And, and I'm impressed, Ian, at your insightfulness at such a young age, uh, having created an opportunity to bring Black History Month into your school. You know, tell us what transpired that got the school to actually install a Black History Month program uh, as a result of your advocacy for this. What, tell, tell me about that. Yeah, uh, I started with my school. I think I'm one of five or six uh, black kids in a whole school in general. I go to a Catholic school in Dubuque. And um, I remember we was in um, English class and history class. Like we kind of tied it into one or whatever. And we had gone through about three or four units. And um, I mean, we had learned almost zero black history at all. And um, I remember I, the teacher was real cool. Uh, her name's Ms. Martin. Um, I asked her, like, you know, where's, you know, where's the black history? And, you know, we're learning all these other things. But, um, you know, I know there's not a lot of us here, but I think it's real important that we learn it. And um, and I think from there, we kind of sat down. Uh, that was my junior year. Uh, we had sat down that whole kind of uh, rest of that semester and talked things out. And um, the end of that year, uh, she kind of let me pick a project. Um, that we did that was kind of uh, you know black history and then um, we had talked over the summer and uh, she had met with the school board I had kind of met with the school board things like that and um, uh, my senior year uh, I had did an individual study so it was really just me and her one-on-one and um, I would do like a black history project on um, a leader or a movement and things like that and that's how she would grade me and then you know my presentation I would have to, you know, presentate to the school board and then the children um, in the classrooms and things like that. And, um, I mean, people were falling in love with it. People were kind of intrigued. Uh, people were kind of for the first time hearing, like, a, a Black person's point of view on uh, some things. And then um, uh, my last, like, the last month, I had made, like, a big project um, presented to the school board. I had made it presented to a lot of classrooms things like that. And then we came to the school board and kind of asked if, um, if we can make it a class, things like that. And, um, they had let it, uh, they had let it slide. They made the class. And, um, the first day, um, that the class was proposed to students so that they could take it. Um, I think it was three, three classes. Um, messed up. And I think they said like 15 minutes, which was really surprising to me because, I didn't think it would fill up at all, you know, meaning the circumstances of what school I'm in. But um, people really took um, took a love into it, and it filled up super super fast. And that's kind of how that came about. Um, kind of just me and my teacher working things out, me presenting to the school board, the classrooms, things like that. And um, I mean, I couldn't be more happy that I was able to do something like that. I think that's just as important as any other baseball accolade I could have got. No, I, I completely agree. And I was just curious about the reaction of your peers of what you had gotten accomplished by doing this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's always going to be those, I mean, it was really split 50, 50. There's always going to be those people who are stubborn and not going to listen. But um, I think a lot of people for the first time was kind of questioning their self and even their kind of um, community, I would say, because, you know, like I said, it was the first time hearing 
any other perspective, you know, but their own, you know what I'm saying? So um, people really took um, a token to it. Um, I had a lot of like uh, open question sessions where people were asking me questions and I would answer them and they were kind of like not taking offense to it, but they was almost taken back because they was like, oh, like you guys really, you know, think that or, you know, that's really your perspective on things. So I, mean, I think that that's really important. And a lot of times I was like almost their first encounter with a black person ever. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, my, my peers, I mean, they were kind of split 50-50, but I mean, it was definitely, you know, I thought it was going to be way more lopsided than what it is. And like I said, about 50-50 right now, and I think that's that's way more progress than what it was at before. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember asking Taylor Hearn this when we did the show earlier in the first season because he's in a locker room and there's not a whole lot of people who look like him. And I asked him, do you ever feel the weight of your blackness? And he was very upfront and honest about the fact that, you know, there were times when he did feel that weight, uh, the weight of feeling like you cannot fail because if you fail, there's this maybe mindset that, Others won't get the opportunity. And I know at such a young age, uh, I'm just curious, do you feel any of that pressure playing the position that you're playing and in hopes of getting an opportunity or creating an opportunity for other Black kids to look at that position and hopefully excel in that position? Yes, definitely. I mean, I'll say that was almost every day, um, especially before I got drafted, you know, um, I mean, I mean, before you get drafted, there's a whole lot of people you're trying to impress different teams, you know, things like that. And you feel like one little mistake um, can definitely, you know, cost you maybe a spot that, you know, that they could take you in the draft or something like that. Um, especially in my position, um, especially the way I act, um, the things I post on social media. I mean, the friends I hang around, not that any of the, any of that, that I just said was bad, but I mean, I mean, it's black for the most part. I got most of my friends are black and I post them on my page. Um, when all the riots or all the things were going on, I was posting all that. Um, I was shedding information on people and um, people definitely look at me um, definitely wrong sometimes. You know, they get a perception on me. And um, I definitely felt that during the draft process a lot. Um, and I think that would carry over to the baseball field. Um, people had a perception on me that, that maybe I was stubborn uh, that was just like a ghetto, you know, black kid, things like that. And um, uh, I definitely got that a lot in uh, Zoom calls like this. When I, uh, you know, be on Zoom calls with teams, people, uh, after the interview, I would get a text or something from a coach that'd be like, you know, I really didn't think you were that intelligent. Um, you know, just by looking at you, I didn't think you were that intelligent. I didn't think that you would articulate like that. And um, I wouldn't say I'm almost certain they don't do that um, with most players, but I mean, I'm almost, <laughs> I'm almost, I'm almost certain they don't do that uh, with most players. The interviews, yeah. so um, I mean, that's stuff that I don't really understand. Um, that's just my background. That's where I come from. Those are the people I grew up with, and that's kind of just how I grew up, you know. And um, yeah, I definitely feel that every day, every day, for sure. Yeah. Does it fuel you? Do you use it as fuel? Does it yeah. motivate you? Does it get your engine going? Does yeah. it give you more drive and determination? Yeah, it, burn, it burns my soul sometimes. I'm not going to lie. Um, it definitely burns my soul. Uh, I just want to prove you know, everybody that ever looked at me like that wrong. 
You know what I'm saying? And um, yeah, every day. That's true. And, and I find that interesting because you are obviously embodying the spirit of the Negro Leagues as a black player in our game. You are carrying forth the legacy of the Negro Leagues with you. And that was pretty much the mindset of so many of those players as they were dealing with the social circumstances that tried to prevent them from playing the game. And so they were fueled by a burning desire to say, I'll show you. Yeah, I'll show you. You don't think I'm good enough to play this game. I'll show you what I can do. And that's exactly what they did. And I think they used the challenges of that social adversity to fuel their determination. And to some extent, they wanted to prove people wrong. You know, they certainly were self-assured. They knew how good they were. And, and honestly, I think Ian, the major leaguers knew how good they were. But there was certainly this burning desire to prove to the world that they could play this game as well as anyone. And all I need is an opportunity. And of course, the Negro Leagues gave them that opportunity. And, and it gave them the fuel they needed to dream. That young, aspiring black ball player of that era knew that there was a chance for him to play professional baseball. It may not be in the major leagues, but it would be in the Negro Leagues and would be in a league that would provide a playing ground for some of the best black and Hispanic talent to showcase their world-class baseball abilities. And, and so, you know, I, I oftentimes share those parallels with all of my young athletes when they come to the museum. And that's why I can't wait when you do make it to the show and get a chance to walk you through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum and to see you immersed in this environment. And I always relate the story of a young Ryan Howard. There's Ryan Howard. This was well before he became Ryan Howard, most valuable player. Ryan Howard, home run champion. This was a young Ryan Howard who at that time was part of the Philadelphia Phillies organization hadn't made it to the big team yet but every year that he would come to kansas city specifically to go to the negro leagues baseball museum come here and walk through this museum and and ian he said that being in this environment kind of was like paying homage you know it, it was his way of saying thank you but it was also something that charged his batteries because I think he understood that no matter what he would have to deal with in spring training, it wouldn't be anything near what these athletes had to endure to play this game. And that's why I look forward to welcoming all of my young athletes. I don't care what color you are. If you play this game, and no sport holds to its history the way our sport does. So if you play this game, you should know the history of this game. The Negro Leagues are obviously a very important part of the history of this game. But if you are Black and or Hispanic descent, this is your Mecca. Mm -hmm. These are your roots. And, and you feel it when you come here. And I do think in the case of our young Ryan Howard, he left inspired and understanding that whatever obstacles that might be put in front of him, he had the wherewithal to overcome it because he knew his place in this game. And I know at 18, you know, 
you're developing that understanding, but what do you think it'll mean for you to walk through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum? Yeah, it's going to mean, I mean, the world. I mean, those are like, you know, the guys that laid the path for me, um, the guys that walked so I could run and um, definitely uh, pay homage the best that I can. I mean, those are the type of guys that definitely inspired me um, to keep going. And I mean, it's just going to be the world for me. I mean, it's just going to be, I know I'm just going to be very thankful that I'm even there. Uh, I mean, the opportunity that I get to be there, walk around, um, just see see every person. I mean, I didn't seen a couple pictures in there before. Uh, you got like the little statues or, yes. you know what I'm saying? Yep. Um, definitely seeing those type of things. Uh, it's going to be more inspiring than anything for me, in my opinion. Um, just to, you know, pay respect to those dudes, you know, when I'm there and, you know, when I get on the field as well. So, I mean, it's going to mean the world for me. And uh, I hope that um, everybody, you know, whoever gets the chance to, you know, in Kansas City or anything, and I hope that they can go there. You know, like you said, no matter what color you are, I think um, if you like baseball, you know, I think you need to go there. Um, that's a lot of history there. Um, they, I mean, they laid a, a good foundation for baseball, even if they weren't in the MLB, in my opinion. Um, so, I mean, it's just going to mean the world for me. Who do you enjoy watching catch today? Um, I love, ooh, I love Yachty still, even though he's getting older. I still love him. Um, ultimate leader. I think that's why I love him the most. Obviously, the catcher skills are impeccable, but I mean, it's it's the leadership that he has. Um, the confidence that guys have thrown to him to even today, um, is insane. And I mean, I love him. Yeah, yeah. Now you would you would have scored even more points with me if you'd have said you like our young catcher here in Kansas City, Salvador <laughs> Perez. But that's all right. <laughs> I love him too, though. He's fun to watch. He have a lot of fun back there. No, Salvi has a lot of fun, man. He has a great personality, and I had the opportunity to walk him through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum several years ago. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was in 2015 when he made his first visit to the museum, the same year that our Kansas City Royals would ultimately end up winning the World Series. Right. And I'm sharing stories with him about Josh Gibson. Mm-hmm. And as a catcher, he was in just absolute disbelief at the incredible combination of power and average from a guy who wasn't a good catcher, but a great catcher. The catching position in the Negro Leagues didn't transition really into the major leagues because there was this underlying belief that we weren't smart enough to play catch. No, the catching position is so close to the manager. And I think that's why you see so many catchers who eventually become managers because you become essentially that extension of the manager. And so you not only have to have the physical tools, but you do have to be kind of the quarterback back there. You know, you're running the show back there. And and so talk to me a little bit about that aspect of how to call a game and how you're learning the intricacies of playing the position. Yeah. I mean, you got to be alert. Um, I'll say, first off, you got to know your pitcher. Um, learn what type of person he is, what he likes to throw, things like that. And uh, when I mean be alert, I mean you got to be watching all things, the batter, where he stands, um, his tendencies, uh, read read a lot of swings. 
things like that. And um, I think that's definitely a loss starting the game right now. Um, even you watch um, high school, even a lot of college games, you know, catchers got earpieces or they're looking at the dugout getting, you know, calls, things like that from their coaches. And it's like, you know, they're not really doing nothing on their own when it comes to calling pitches. And I think um, I wouldn't say that's uh, from a lost intelligence standpoint. I just think right, that's just the new wave that, you know, yeah. things are on right now. And um, I mean, I never really I mean, I've been calling my own pitching since I was 12. But I never really liked that. I like having the responsibility in my hands um, of calling pitches. And like I said, that's what that's what communication. I think that's part of leadership and that's just part of knowing the game comes from. You got to be able to watch everything, all aspects, pitcher, hitter, tendencies, things like that. And I think um, that's where intelligence comes from. And like I said, you got to be real smart to, to catch back there and do it for a long time. So, I mean, I think I think if you got the intelligence part down, I think you'll go far away when you catch up. Yeah. If you had to, and I know at such a young age, but if you had to think about your legacy, your place, what do you think about? Yeah, um, I, I always tell people that um, um, I, I think I think God put me on here to um, inspire people and to be, you know, a community leader. And I think he just gave me baseball as a platform to do that. Uh, you know what I'm saying? So, um, I mean, as many as much as I want the baseball accolades and be remembered as as best player ever, which I definitely do. You know, I work hard um, to try to do that. You know, I want to be more remembered for you know, helping the kids out, helping the community uh, the black community. And, um, yeah, my legacy, I just want to be, you know, a leader on, on, on and off the field. You know, I know there's a lot of people that are, um, I remember for the on the field stuff and that's good. Um, when it comes off the field, you know, people aren't really inspired, you know, they're just inspired by, you know, the on the field. I want to inspire, um, more people off the field, uh, than I would say on the field, you know what I'm saying? Uh, not to discredit anything from a baseball standpoint, cause, uh, you know, that's obviously, you know, the most important thing right now um, that I have. You know, I want to be remembered as, as a community guy. You know, more, even people who don't play baseball can look up to me, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. If I were to ask you at this point in your life, what's your favorite memory? The thing that you remember the most about anything that has happened in baseball for you at this point? Oh, um, oh. Um, I probably said the first time I ever went to uh, the Breakthrough Series event. Um, that was like the first time I had ever seen more than like two or three black kids on a baseball field at one time. You know what I'm saying? And um, and almost it's like um a relief, like a sigh off your back, like a load off your back, and you can almost relax. You almost play better. You play loose, and um, you know I know for you know for for other kids, you know maybe that. They're like that all the time for other nationalities, things like that, because they're always around their people. But, you know, the first time that Breakthrough Series, it was just, you know, everybody's just having fun. There's music playing. You know, you're learning a lot, but you're just having fun and enjoy the game. I think um, most kids, you know, at a young age, especially black kids, you know, um, they don't really see that fun, and then they just lose the love for games super early. But I think that's why you see, uh, you don't see a lot of the black kids really um, you get to high school playing baseball like that because their love was lost real early. And um, I think, you know, if, break, if something like Breakthrough Series at a younger age, you know what I'm saying, I think there'll be so many more black kids playing baseball. So definitely the first time um, I went out there in Arizona, that was like almost an eye-opener. Like, yeah, this is what baseball should be like. You know? so, <laughs> yeah. 
Probably yeah, not. you felt you felt like you was playing in the Negro leagues then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, I just got back recently from the Hank Aaron Invitational. Yep. And so I was down in Vero with uh all those kids, both black and brown, who were there. And many of the kids said the exact same thing that they came from high school environments where they were one or few black kids on those teams. And so all of a sudden to be immersed in an environment where there were so many others who looked like you, that they finally got to, I guess you could say, let the hair down a little bit and feel like you can be yourself, yet still have fun and learn the game from some great instructors. And so, you know, they all kind of share that same sentiment that you just shared. And I can imagine, again, you feel that weight. And, uh, but again, I, I love the fact that you're taking that and using it as fuel to continue to be better, to continue to excel. But I also love the fact that this is not just self-serving for you. You have a burning desire to see others follow in your footsteps and you've kind of dedicated yourself, even at such a young age, to wanting to make sure that others pursue this game. Why was that important to you? Yeah, I mean, for me, I've never really been like um, a mean type of guy, um, especially the people that I love and um, especially my community. I always wanted to, um, you know what I'm saying, push them further and, you know, go further, um, not just with baseball, but in life in general. So um, I think at a young age, you know, that was kind of just a brand inside of me. Um, you know, I just don't want to see me when I want to see everybody around me and everybody, you know, in the country, you know, succeed and push farther. And um, I don't know, it's just always been me. It's always been a burning desire in me. And uh, I mean, I guess I could, you know, say, you know, my parents instill that in me. The people I've been around growing up instill that in me. And uh, yeah, that's always been me. I always want to see everybody else, you know, succeed with me. Yeah, no, that's beautiful. It has been an absolute pleasure, man to welcome you to Black Diamonds. Thanks so much for being a part of the show. Thanks so much for giving so much of yourself to help others and to try and inspire others and hopefully have others walk in your footsteps as you continue to make your way and chart your path, not only in this game, but in life. Yes, sir. Thank you. It's an honor to be on here and uh I want to thank you, you know, for bringing awareness to the Negro Leagues and um, Black Baseball as, as a history um, in general. So, I mean, thank you. Thank you more than, thank you more than anybody, really. Thank you. <laughs> it's my pleasure, man. It is my pleasure. Like I said, I can't wait till you make it to the show. And I'm going to hang around for as long as I can to make sure I can welcome you here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap Podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Daniel Samuels. 
editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.